Good morning, church family. Hey, if you can, uh, scooch in a little bit. That would be wonderful. Uh, if you've got an empty seat by you, we've got a few people still trying to, to get in, and that'll leave us a few seats open. So if you're new this morning, we're really glad you're here. If you're a guest, and we hope you get connected uh, here to the church family. We have started a, a new series last week called Enough, and it's a study in the book of Colossians. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, if you want to turn there. Uh, on your, uh, in your Bible or on your phone, whatever you've got. And then we'll also be in John chapter 11. So you can turn to John chapter 11 as well. Well, uh, my name is Cody, and I get the, the blessing, the privilege of leading our South Joplin plant, Hope City Church. And uh, give you a little bit of an update. Tonight we have a meeting in, uh, at Victory Ministry down south, and it's from 5 to 6. And we would love for you to be there if God's placed that on your heart or if you're a part of that launch team. And if you haven't filled out a card yet to be a part of that team, we'll have an opportunity to do, to do that again tonight. Somebody asked me, hey, you know that's part, like that's during the NFL playoff game, right? And I'm like, I know, who thought, whose idea was that? So, um, but uh, we'll give live updates or something, so it'll be all right. But we'd love for you to be down there, build some community. Uh, we'll cast some vision and, and eat some chips and queso. So it'll be awesome. But we're going we're gonna to do this this morning. We're just going to dive into Colossians 1, if you guys are, are ready to do that. And we're going to read the second uh, part of Colossians 1. So uh, last week, if you remember, if you were here, Michael uh, preached on verses 1 through 14. This week, we're going to cover verses 15 through 23. Here we go. It says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I really believe today verse 15 is gonna set up our talk. And so what Paul does in verse 15 is he throws out this statement And this statement becomes a springboard for what he's getting ready to do. And he says this. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, I don't know if you can wrap your mind around that statement. I have difficulty doing that. That Jesus came to earth to to literally take on flesh and become to the people here, to us, the image of the unseen the image of the God of the universe, the creator of mankind. And Jesus came and he did that. Image is a really big deal. The image that we have of God is a really big deal. The image we have of Jesus and even the image we have of ourselves. And I, I, would, sit, I would submit to you this morning that if you don't think image is a big deal, 
begin to count how many mirrors you have in your home. Uh, you probably have one in the bathroom, uh, probably on the, on the closet door in the bedroom or on your dresser. Uh, maybe you have a big mirror hanging on the wall in the living room. Um, maybe you use the microwave as a mirror in the kitchen to fix your hair. Whatever that, mirrors are everywhere. I mean, we've got mirrors plastered everywhere. A good practice at some point would be to uh, count how many times in a day we look in a mirror. And I think we would begin to discover how important image is to you and me. You know, it's interesting because it starts really young. Psychologists would say that uh, in the first 24 months of a child's life, at at about 24 months, they begin to recognize themselves in a mirror. And we've got all the toys that they play with, and they already are beginning to recognize who they are. And so this image thing is a big deal. In fact, we could say that uh, not only is it a big deal that we've been concerned about our image, but we've been concerned about it to the point that it's become a big challenge in our Western culture. Uh, Most folks would tell you that uh, those who deal with things like eating disorders are are primarily started at a very young age. It's interesting. New York City started this new project. It's called the New York City Girls, NYC Girls. And the project, the whole purpose of the project is to tackle the issue of girls' self-esteem and body image. They have a campaign, and in this campaign, they would say this, we're recognizing that girls as young as six and seven are struggling with body image. They would say that over 80% of 10-year-old girls worry that they're fat. This is a big deal. Image is a big thing, and it starts really young. Kids and teens begin to struggle with image. And guess what? Those kids and teenagers grow up into adults like you and me, and they carry it into their adulthood. And can we just be honest that many of us are sitting in this room this morning, and we could confess that, yes, for me, I struggle at times with image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I'll tell you, man, this probably seems insignificant to many of you, but for me, shopping is the worst thing in the world that one could put me through. And my wife will tell you this. I'd rather be hit in the stomach with a baseball than go shopping. Like I, I could think of many things that would hurt less than going shopping, but uh, every once in a while, I've got to go shopping. I, I get a shirt or something like that, and I use the technique of uh, just buy whatever's on the mannequin because I, I don't know how to keep up with trends and what's cool, and so you just buy whatever's on the mannequin, and that's what I do 10 times out of 10. Well, man, uh, I'm starting to realize that I may have a challenge in this whole image department. When I came home one day and I'd bought a shirt, I put it in the closet, Came home one day, didn't think much about it. Six months later, I walk out into the garage, and my daughter and my wife are high-fiving each other. I walk into the conversation, I'm, what's going on? And, and I got them to confess that this shirt that I had bought six months previous, that they detested it, and so they had hid it from me, brand new shirt, and just sold it in the garage sale. And they're outside cheering. And I, you know, a whole nother sermon on deception could be preached through that whole deal, but... You talk about feeling dumb. I'm like, Damn, I, is it really that bad? Like, but we do. We struggle, don't we? I mean, image is a challenge for us. And so we get into this passage and we hear this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And it begins to challenge me. I love what Wayne, author Wayne Cordero says. Wayne Cordero says, you know, we've got an image management problem. 
he says this. He describes image management as the fears we live with, we live with on a daily basis. A mother with children in diapers doesn't have the option of leaving her babies and flying to Hawaii to get away for a week. The stressed captain, captain of the team can't get away from a strategic game to watch his favorite sitcom. The man who's juggling work and bills and being on the board at the local nonprofit can't just push pause on life. Can the student maintain the GPA? Can the marriage sustain itself? Will life consume us to the point where folks will begin to see that we're weak? This is a big challenge. And for me, I can just tell you, I've allowed at times image management to creep in. And here's the problem with image management. Image management leads to death. And there's a reason that Paul writes in Colossians how important it is in verse 15 to understand who Jesus is, that he's the image of the invisible God. This is what Paul will do in, in different writings. He will, he will set up what he's, the, the problem that he wants to talk about by giving the answer first. So if Paul is going to talk about lust, he would probably stand up here and he would say, man, God, there is nothing we could desire more than God. And he would begin to explain all the incredible attributes of God. And then he would push pause and he'd go, okay, then why are we investing in things that are temporary? Why do, we, why do we desire stuff that doesn't matter? And that's what he's doing in this passage. He's beginning to explain the image of the invisible God. And then what happens? He gets a little further down in the passage and he says this, once you were alienated from God. So he gives us the answer and then he says, here's the problem. We have alienated ourselves from God in a lot of ways. We have begun to think, as Michael began last uh, week to, to allude, we begin to think that we can supplement different things in our life and that, that maybe Jesus isn't enough. You know, Michael talked about how we have to remember what we signed up for. He said, not only that, but we have to remember what God has done. And I would, I would just share with you this morning that the third thing in this chapter one that we've got to remember, we've got to remember who Jesus is. We do, because if we forget who Jesus is, we begin, we begin to manage this whole thing on our own. And to be real honest, it gets messy. If you're exhausted with this idea of image management, this 2 Corinthians passage, I think, will, will speak to you. It says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outward we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we do what? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, the invisible God. Since what is seen is temporary, but, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, in the midst of trying to manage our image, Paul is saying this. Your image management issues are going to lead to death. But I want to share something this morning that I think, you know, for some of you in this room, the image management piece for yourself has been a struggle. And for some of you, you've been able to, to turn that over to Christ. But I want to share something that I think becomes even more evident in the life of a Christ follower. As we begin to ask, and as we begin to ask, if Jesus is enough not only do we struggle with managing our image, but we move into dangerous territory and we begin to struggle with managing Jesus' image. Let me explain. I don't know if you've ever put God in a box or 
defined God in a way that you thought, okay, now Jesus, if you'll just do this or that, then this will fix this and it'll fix that. But we begin this challenge of managing the, the, the image of Jesus. We ask questions like, what if he's not enough? What if he's not enough to fix my marriage that's falling apart? What if he's not enough when it comes to my friend who's struggling to believe in him? What if he's not enough to heal the cancer that's in my husband's body? What if he's not enough to heal the wounds of sexual abuse? Or what if he's not enough to rid me of the guilt of my past? And guilt is a big deal. I mean... Just to make you feel better, there were some pretty incredible people in Scripture that dealt with the same problem. Peter, as he was walking on water, is walking to Jesus, and Jesus is doing this miracle. And all of a sudden, Peter begins to do what? He's doubting. I mean, the the brother's walking on water, and he starts doubting and trying to figure out, okay, how much of this whole scenario do I need to manage because it's getting really out of control? And what happens is doubt breeds unbelief. And his unbelief all of a sudden causes him to sink. And you know that in that moment, Jesus is going, Peter, I'm doing this, not you. I, I want to share this situation that takes place in John chapter 11. And I think this will help put some hands and feet on this whole idea of how we tend to manage Jesus. So if you will, if you will turn to John chapter 11 for a few minutes. And I want to share with you this story in John chapter 11. I'll set it up by telling you that there's... There's uh, three main characters outside of Jesus. There's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are siblings. And you may know the story, but Lazarus has died. And Mary and Martha are in mourning. And Jesus was really close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I mean, when it came to having close friends, they spent a lot of time together. Mary and Martha loved Jesus. And as you read the stories about them washing his feet I mean, they, they served Jesus. They, they understood what Jesus was about. But in chapter 11, the very thing of image management when it comes to our relationship with Jesus begins to take place. And so it says this in verse 17. I think you'll pick up on this. It says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. That's a big deal, just so you know. Mary loved Jesus. Martha goes out, Mary stays home. You see the conflict building within Mary. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you'd been here, my brother would, would not have died. And then she says, but I know that even now God will ask, will, will give you whatever you ask. And so you see this in, in, in Martha, don't you? She's saying, Jesus, if you would have been here, this could have all been taken care of. But, but I, know, I know you're God. I, I know you can do this. And I think what Mary and Martha are struggling with as we read through this this situation is they're going, God, we believe you're willing. We're just not sure. Or we believe you're able. We're just not sure you're willing. See, Mary and Martha believed in Jesus. They'd seen him, seen him do incredible things. But in this moment, they begin to question the very heart of Jesus. And the text goes on, and it says this. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha trying to, to, to manage the, 
the situation, answers, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In other words, I, I, know, I know that. I know when, when the Lord comes back that he will rise again. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is asking Martha straight up, do you, do you believe what I'm telling you? Do you believe who I am? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. She said, the teacher's here. She said, and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not entered the village yet, but still at the place where, Mary, or where Martha had met him. And when the Jews had, uh, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And this is what she said, Lord, if you had been here, it would have been enough. Lord, my brother would not have died. And she questions, just like Martha, whether Jesus was enough in that situation. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. And can I just share this with you? I have read this passage several times and I, I really thought, and I still do believe this, that one of the reasons Jesus was moved was because these three are like family to him. They're upset and they're hurt and they're broken. And, I, and I, I'd read that and I always thought, you know what, he's broken for them. But they're asking the question, Jesus, why didn't you do something? I mean, they really are questioning, God, are you enough? You know us, we're hurting and we're broken. Are you enough? And I believe in this moment, one of the reasons Jesus weeps is because I think he sees in Mary and Martha the same thing that creeps into our lives. We begin to believe that God is more than able, but we question whether or not his character and whether or not he's willing. And I don't know if you've been there, but that's a tough place to be. And so what we do is our prayers begin to change. And we say things like, God, if, if, you're, willing to, if you're willing to heal my marriage, and I believe Jesus looks at it and he goes, what do you mean if I, that, I have no more desire than to see your life restored? Trust me, you know, you know me, you know my character and you know my heart. This is who I am at my very core. Do you believe me? And in that, I wonder often if, if Jesus is going, listen, I'm not here to take away all the bad that has ever happened. And I think in the moment of Lazarus, I'm, I'm sure that's Jesus is going, I mean, you know, I know, Lazarus still dies. He dies later. So Jesus does something in that moment, but Jesus, I think, is looking at Mary and Martha and going, hey, did you not think I would be enough to sustain you through this? Your concern right now is that, that Jesus, your concern for Jesus is that he's not capable of sustaining you through that difficult time. And Jesus is saying, I am. The dynamic that's playing out is one that I think begs the question, what if Jesus isn't enough? And I want to change that question and pose a different question to you this morning. And the question is this, what if he is? What if Jesus is enough? 
and in Peter's unbelief, and, in, and I, I've got to believe when Lazarus walks out of that tomb alive, I've got to believe that Mary and Martha had a moment with Jesus. And in their celebration, I've got to believe there was a moment of, Jesus, we're sorry that we ever doubted who you were. So back to Colossians, Paul says this. In case you've forgotten who Jesus is, he's the firstborn over all creation. He created all things in heaven or earth. He created the visible, the invisible. He created the kings and he even created their kingdoms. He holds it all together and he's here to fix what's wrong. Can I read verse 21 and 22 again? It says this, once you were alienated from God, once you were alienated and you were enemies in your minds because of your behavior, your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm. And he says this, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Friends, the hope in the gospel is that Jesus is who he says he is. It's interesting that we started this morning talking about mirrors, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but when I look into the face of Jesus, when I come into worship or when I am in the word and maybe in prayer and I experience who Jesus is and I see him for who he is, boy, it sure points out the inadequacies in my life. It sure points out the shortcomings, doesn't it? I mean, I've got to admit to you, there's times when I come to Jesus and it's painful because I know looking into him just like a mirror, it's going to reflect back to me my true self. And folks, I believe with all my heart that we have to begin to look to scripture, not just to lean on scripture to get us out of this whole trap of image management that we find ourselves in, but to begin to redefine how we view Jesus because we believe the Genesis 3 lie. The Genesis 3 lie where Adam and Eve were in the garden with Satan. And what did Satan say? He said, what if God's holding something back from you? What if God's not who he says he is? What if there's really something good out there that he has for you but he's keeping you from it? What if he's able to give you life, but he's not willing? And we begin to buy into that just like Adam and Eve did. And I don't know about you, but the Genesis 3 unbelief creeps into my life and I have to begin to remind myself, Jesus, don't let me forget who you are. I was with a group of guys this last week and we began to just write out attributes of God. Scripture says that Jesus is the provider And for me, I needed that. I needed that reminder because doubt creeps in just like it did for Mary and Martha. And I know, God, I know you can provide, but will you? The cool thing is that Paul's big finish to who God is is his reminder to us that God is in the business of taking people who can't manage the broken life and restoring them unto him. And I tell you, There's nothing worse or more frustrating than trying to manage guilt. And he comes in and he says, here's the deal. If you knew Jesus and who he really was, you're gonna find that that guilt can be taken away if you trust in him. There's a book by Erwin McManus called The Barbarian Way. 
And in his book, he begins to tell an illustration of a guy by the name of Robert the Bruce. And if you've ever seen Braveheart, and some of you girls are like, I've never seen Braveheart. So, but if you've ever seen Braveheart, and you can picture this actually taking place. Mel Gibson's face is all painted up, and he's like wearing a kilt on a horse, which no one should do. But this is the scenario, right? This is Robert the Bruce. We're in the same time period. He says this, Robert the Bruce was a Scottish noble that rose up to lead Scotland to freedom after the execution of William Wallace. Well, shortly before his death, Robert the Bruce requested that his heart be removed from his body and taken on a crusade by a worthy knight. So James Douglas was one of his closest friends, and he was at his bedside when he died in 1329, and Douglas took on this responsibility, which is asking a lot of a friend. He embalmed the heart of Robert the Bruce and placed it in a small container that he wore around his neck. And in every battle that Douglas fought, he literally carried the heart of his king pressed against his chest. Well, later on in the early spring of 1330, Douglas sailed from Scotland to Spain and engaged in a campaign against the Moors. And during this ill-fated battle, Douglas found himself surrounded and he was in the situation where capture was imminent and death was certain. And that moment, Douglas does this, I mean, you can see it, it's like a movie. Douglas reaches from the heart, strapped, strapped around his neck, he tears it off, and he flings it into the enemy. And he says this, he cries out to his people, he says, fight for the heart of your king. I wonder sometimes if the reason we don't fight for the heart of our king is because we live with unbelief of whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. And I believe with all my heart that Satan would want nothing more than for us to buy into that lie. Jesus says, what, what about the leper? I healed the leper. The man who was lonely, who was isolated, who had no hope. What about the bleeding woman? You remember her? What about the man who laid by the pool and for years tried to get healed? And I walked up to him. What about the, peop- what about the people who were hungry? And I, I turned to a few loaves and bread into thousands. Do you remember that? Folks, what if Jesus is enough? What if we are living not just with the frustrating piece of controlling our own image, but what if we have identified Jesus and we have put him into a box that has kept him from being all that he could be in our lives? Colossians 1 says this, don't forget what you signed up for. Don't forget what God's done in your life and whatever you do, by all means, don't forget who Jesus is. I need that daily reminder. This morning, I'm guessing that there's folks in a couple different camps. Maybe this image management thing has really become an issue for you. And to be honest, you're just exhausted. You're like, you know what? I've tried to keep up the, the shell on the outside, but inside I'm imploding. And Jesus would say to you the same thing he would say to Mary and Martha. Do you you believe that I am who I am? You know me. Trust me. And for those of us who have struggled with putting God in our own box and identifying him in a way that just, to be honest, is a Genesis 3 disbelief, We just need to ask God to forgive us of that and get into his word to trust the character of who he says he is. 
That's the only way to live in the fullness of Christ. Whatever boat you're in this morning, and if you came with somebody or you want to talk to somebody here, we'd love to chat with you. There's some lamps on tables. There's folks there that are always willing to have a conversation or pray. But make sure, make sure you don't walk out of this place this morning and not make some step in the direction that God's calling you to. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and we just confess, God, that so often we're trying to figure out life and that we were created in your image. And apart from you, we just can't do this deal. And so we ask, God, right now that you would take the overwhelming burden of trying to manage something that you created and give it back to its creator. God, that we would lay our our lives at your feet. Jesus, we trust you're enough. And we believe, God, that that if you can transform and change lives, God, and that we've witnessed that, if you can do that, Lord, that you are a God who's willing to meet his people right where they're at. And so this morning, we just ask, ask, would you meet us right where we are? And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.